The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 14th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. When one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. There once was a man who proposed to the woman he loved. He did everything he was supposed to do. He did it in a charming way. He got down on one knee. He said all of the right things, and she was ecstatic. She was thrilled. She was so glad that at long last she was going to be his wife. This man was an upright man. We've been reading the book of Ruth in our Wednesday morning Bible studies, and this man was like Boaz, the upright man in the book of Ruth, a godly man, a God-fearing man who loves his neighbors, who wants to provide and care for and protect his wife, to do everything that he ought to do. He is a man's man. He has a good job, a good reputation, and he loves the Lord. This fellow got down on one knee and he proposed and she was so excited and he promised to give her everything that he had. That's what marriage entails, doesn't it? It entails sharing everything all together. The good and the bad, the sickness and the health, the richer, the poor, all of it. A life shared together. He promised to give her a life and a home and a family and he prepared everything so that she could flourish. So he took his home and he rearranged everything. He made everything just the way she, he gave her her own sink in the bathroom so she could be totally happy and not have to clean up his toothpaste. All of these things. He prepared everything just the way, just the way she wanted it. But as the wedding day approached, she began to get cold feet. Her eye began to wander. He loved her more and more and more, and she began to think about other options, about other possibilities. It wasn't that there was one other man that she had her eye on, but she just thought, why should I narrow myself so much? Why should I foreclose all kinds of other options? What if, what if he's not always so charming? What if there's someone who's more handsome? What if there's someone who can provide for me better? What if there's someone who makes a better offer, a better promise? What if I get bored? Why would I want to lock myself down? What if I feel trapped? And on the day of the wedding, he's standing at the altar waiting for her to come forward with her father. And he waits and waits and waits. The church bells are ringing. 
The groom is waiting at the altar. Everyone's there ready to celebrate, and she is nowhere to be found. And if you think this is the plot of some movie with Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, maybe, maybe that's part of the inspiration. It's a good story. Finally, they tracked her down. They tracked her down, and they asked her what had happened. And she said, well, I bought a new waffle iron, and I needed to, I needed to test it out. I think that sometimes the parable that Jesus tells of the great banquet is a little bit hard for us to wrap our heads around, not because it's confusing, but just because we don't think about banquets and feasts the way that they did in the ancient Near East, that the people of Israel did. But, but maybe you can see the same idea in this wedding gone wrong, in this runaway bride. She had accepted the promise. She had committed She had said she would be his, to have and to hold forever. And then on the day when it was finally going to be real, she said, no, thank you. I've got better things to do. And as a matter of fact, those better things to do, they were just excuses. Everyone could see through them. What's a waffle iron on the day of your wedding? That was just an excuse. She just couldn't bring herself to say, no, I don't want to go, which is just like these men who are invited to this feast by the master when they make these excuses. I've bought a field, I've bought some animals, I've married a wife. They just don't have the nerve to say, I don't want to be there. I'm not interested any longer. I like the story of the runaway bride because I think it paints a vivid and clear picture of the betrayal and the disdain that the master of the banquet would have felt. He had extended an invitation, so here's how invitations worked at this time. The master would send out invitations in advance, days or weeks or even months ahead of time. And the people who were invited would accept the invitation. And then he would begin to work to make preparations, finding all the food, finding all the helpers, making sure that everything is prepared. All is now ready. That's what the master of the feast said. Send out the final call to all of the people who were invited and who accepted. Tell them the party's happening now. Everything's ready to go. And when... That final call went out. What did the people do? They changed their mind. They went back on their reception of the invitation. They ran away from the altar. They left the bridegroom standing there wondering what had gone wrong, scratching his head, thinking maybe there was somebody else, wondering what could be better than what he has to offer. Now, I also like this story of the runaway bride because you can hear, I think, I can at least, you can hear... In our world, kind of a mixed set of reviews of this story. A lot of people, in fact, that's the story of the, with Richard Gere and uh, Julia Roberts. She's praised for being a runaway bride in the end. Go, good for her. Good for her in you know, kind of not doing what everybody else does and saying no and going after whatever she wants. Good for her and having a free spirit and not being tied down and not foreclosing other options. Good for her in following her heart. You can kind of hear That kind of an attitude. You can hear that even about the people in our story today. So what? They don't want to go to the banquet. So what? They have better things to do. They feel like they have to make an excuse because they don't want to hurt the guy's feelings. But look, they have something better to do. Isn't that a good thing for them to, you know, kind of follow their own hearts, to follow their own desires? That misses the point entirely. And that's actually just what they were thinking. These people, this woman, they were thinking, this is up to me. I can decide what is good, I can decide what is best, and if I pursue it, if I chase it, with all of my energy, I will be content and happy. But at the end of the story, of course, what happens? Those fellows who were invited, who thought maybe, maybe there'll be another party later, maybe, maybe I'll have better things to do, 
they were kept out. The banquet was filled up, and when there was a little bit more room, the master said, go and find some more people, drag them here, because I don't want any of those who refused the invitation, I don't want any of them to taste of my feast. It's not the way it works. You don't get to sort of accept the invitation. You don't get to accept the invitation on your own terms. You don't get to show up to the altar when you want to, but you show up when it's time. Now, Jesus tells this story to the people of Israel, who had been God's people from of old, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the blessed Moses, who calls them out of Egypt. God's people who had been redeemed from slavery and given the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus tells the story to those people who had rejected the invitation. That's the immediate audience. So think back to some of the stories you know about those people. God brought them out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea on dry land, took them to Mount Sinai, and he made a covenant with them. It was kind of like a marriage ceremony. It was an invitation by God for them to dwell with him forever in the promised land where they would lack nothing and he would be their God. And there at Mount Sinai, while all of the details are being hashed out, while Moses is on the mountain talking with God about his great love, his faithful love, his steadfast love for his people, while Moses is arranging everything with God and God is making sure everything is in order, down below the mountain, what are the people doing but offering sacrifices to a golden calf that they had built that could not see or hear or take care of them, that had nothing to offer them. They were offering sacrifices to an idol. They had heard and received the invitation, yes, Lord, we'll follow you wherever you lead, but this is a little bit too much. Maybe we've got something better. Maybe something tangible, something in front of us, something that looks like it's got some luster, something that glitters. Maybe that would be better. And so, right away, on their wedding night, they were unfaithful. When the call came out, all is now ready, they said, look, we've got other plans. I've got other things to do. And that was the story of the people of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. So if you ever read parts of the Old Testament and you wonder what's going on, this is what's going on. It's God extending his gracious invitation to people that he has called to be his own and those people rejecting it. Heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for our God. And it shows how long-suffering and patient he is to the point that he reaches this moment where Jesus is preaching to the ancestors or to to the generations that came after all of these people beforehand, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's preaching to them and he says, don't you see? The invitation is yours, and you rejected it. You haven't received it. Come, for everything is now ready, and you know what they wanted to do to him? They wanted to put him to death. Come, for everything is now ready. That's a beautiful thing. Everything has been done. It's all been prepared. The way has been made straight. The doors have been opened. The feast is lavish. Come, says wisdom in Proverbs chapter 9. Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. This is not just some sort of, it's not just like weekend plans that somebody invited you to and you have something better come up. This is not just some occasional thing, but this is an invitation to life as opposed to death. It's an invitation to wisdom. Instead of folly, this is the best invitation, the best marriage, the best there ever could be. And it is God's intention to have that banquet full. Notice how he wants no seat empty. 
What he has prepared is so good that he does not want it to go to waste, and he will have it enjoyed and received. He will have it be a blessing. But notice again why it is the poor and the lame and the blind and the crippled who enter into the feast. It's because those who were first invited rejected it. And it is so that they will not find a spot that the master sends out servants into the highways and the byways and compels people to come in. But notice also this, that the poor and the blind and the lame and the crippled, they don't care. They don't care that they were second on the list. They don't care that first others were invited. They come in and they recognize right away what a gracious thing this is. They don't deserve it. The people on the highways and the byways, the criminals, the people who are hiding in the shrubs and in the hedges, the people who are up to no good, they find themselves at the feast and they can appreciate it. They have not taken it for granted. They never thought it would be theirs. And yet here they are. And their eyes are opened and they see what a glorious and gracious thing it is. And it's a tragedy that those who were invited, those for whom it was prepared, that they lose out on it altogether. That's the lesson for us, for our eyes to be opened to the graciousness of this invitation. It's an invitation that has been extended to all of you and that is sent out into the whole world. And so many hear it and refuse. So many hear it and say, I have better things to do. So many hear it and say, maybe later, or do I have to? So many hear it and find themselves left in the darkness outside because they refused. God spends so much effort on this, on preparing the banquet, on sending out the invitation, because the difference between life and death is everything, between the di- because the difference between wisdom and folly is everything. So Lady Wisdom sends out her invitation, and her offer is that you would leave your simple ways and live. This feast is a feast of life, of eternal life, of freedom from all of the things that bog us down, that weigh us down, all of the futility, all of the spinning your wheels, all of the things that degrade, all of the things that lead us straight into hell, that's what this feast is. It's a feast in the forgiveness of sins, the the death and resurrection of Jesus, the body and blood of Jesus poured out for you. This is how we know love, St. John says, and that he laid down his life for us. That's the feast, salvation, from the hell that this world leads us straight into, from an undue love of money and wealth and success and pleasure from the indulgence of our passions, from sins that weigh us down and fill us with guilt, from selfish ambition, from lust, from all of the things that are dreadful and dark in this world. That's what the invitation is, is freedom from all of those things. It's freedom from never being satisfied, from always scraping and scrounging and grasping after things that fade away. It's freedom from death. It's freedom from the grave. It's eternal life in a kingdom that is full of love. You can hardly picture it, can't you? It's an amazing thing. Those on the outside as they were looking in, can you imagine? Can you imagine having a feast of well-prepared food, well-aged wine, rich food, delicious food, lots of desserts, a feast, and you are standing outside and you look at it and you say, I'd rather go and check on my oxen. I'd rather go and see to a field. Can you imagine that? And yet, that is exactly what happens because the lusts and temptations of this life, the pleasures of this world, the desires of our flesh, they weigh on us. 
They threaten us. They drag us down. They tempt us to despise what God has given to us. So again, the call today is to pay attention to how you regard God's gracious invitation. You are all here, and that is good. It is far better than not being here, but how are you here? Are you here simply because you have to be here? Are you here going through the motions? Are you here for your own personal reasons? Because this is something that has some value for you, for you alone. Is, are you here because, well, someone made you? Think about why you're here, and think also about this. Think about the nature of invitation. So one of the ways for us to gauge what's going on in our hearts when we think about God's love for us is to think about whether or not or how we share it with others. So there's a place for you in this story that isn't just being one who receives the invitation and shows up at the feast, but there's a place for you in this story also as the servant who goes out and shares the invitation. Do you do that? Do you tell others about how gracious this host is, about how good it is to be freed from sin and death? Do you tell others about the gifts that God gives you, the blessings of his spirit, the eternal life that he wants to give to everyone? Do you tell others? And if you do not, if you do not, think about why. This is, I think, a helpful diagnostic. Is it, again, because you don't really know why you're here? It's just something you do. Is it because you think that they'll find you foolish? Is it because you're afraid they'll reject the invitation, that they'll be offended? What do I need that for? What do you think I am? Some sort of a weak-minded person like you? What do you mean I'm a sinner? I don't need forgiveness. Do you think you'll be rejected? Look into your hearts and see. Think about your interactions with people who need the forgiveness of sins, who need the grace of God. Think about the people in your life who do not have it. And ask yourself how you can tell them. And if you are hesitant, why you do not. And I think if you ask that question, if you ask why you do not, you will find your own lack of love for God's gifts. Your own sense of, well, maybe this isn't as good as it seems or it's not as great as it sounds. Maybe there are other better things to share with people. And when you see that, repent. This is the remedy for every sinful desire for every bit of flesh that lingers in us, it is to repent. It is to say, I'm sorry, Lord, that I haven't valued your invitation, that I have found myself also among those who find better things to do, who think the invitation is kind of silly. I got in the mail a while ago uh, a packet of invitations to the circus, and I threw them away (laughs) because I was supposed to share them with people, but I have no, no love for the circus. I threw them away because it was not valuable to me, right? If it had been something else, if it had been a packet of invitations or a packet of gift certificates to some restaurant, some wonderful restaurant in St. Cloud, what would I have done? I wouldn't have thrown it away. I would have handed it out. I would have, I would have found everybody I could to give it to them. Think about that. Think about the difference between the kind of thing that you love to share, the kind of thing that you value, the kind of thing that you find amazing and marvelous, and the kind of thing that you would just toss away and see. See where God's love fits into that spectrum. What has he done for you? What has he prepared for you? What hope has he given you? What blessings has he delivered to you? What sins has he forgiven that you could not endure on your own? What guilt has he taken away? What life has he promised you? When you think about that, remember, remember where you've come from. 
After all, we are all among those blind and lame, those who have no reason to belong at the feast, those who've been invited, those who've been brought in and compelled because they didn't think they fit in. You and I all are among that number. Remember that when you invite others. Remember what God has done for you. When the groom is standing at the altar waiting for his bride to come, everybody is holding their breath. And it's a beautiful moment. And it is utter tragedy. It's the worst kind of a story when she doesn't show up. But, but when she does, it's all tears and smiles and applause and celebration and joy. And that is exactly the kind of affect, the kind of attitude, the kind of environment that this place is. When everyone comes, when anyone comes, when people who are lost hear what they need to receive, when they are blessed by the forgiveness of sins, when they receive the grace of God, that's what this place is. So do not be shy. Do not be shy. Look into your hearts and see what God has done for you, and then open your hearts and invite everyone you can. Jesus says that he's not going to stop until his feast is full. He's going to fill every seat. Let us so endeavor also to help him with that task. God alone be all glory now and forever. Amen.